2: Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. It is April 10th, and we are here to talk about the 1994 College World Series Championship game. It is a part of our ongoing series of re-watching uh, great games that we can find on YouTube. And then we, uh, we are going to be joined by Oklahoma former Oklahoma, I should say, outfielder, Eric Thomas, who is now an assistant coach for Florida Softball. Uh, He he is our guest this week. And if you are new to this series, uh, it was kind of uh, Joe came up with the idea of of watching these games that that we can find out there on YouTube. There are a lot of college baseball games on YouTube. Joe highlighted 10 of them for a post over at baseballamerica.com that you can find. And we're kind of working our way through that list uh, and, and watching these games. And then we're bringing on a guest to, uh, to join us who, who is a participant in those games. And we, we break them down and we, we just kind of take a trip down memory lane because that's that's how we're getting our baseball fix in these days. So hopefully you, uh, you're enjoying these. I, I, I think I can say that I'm enjoying them. Joe, I, I know you are very much enjoying going back and uh, diving into some college baseball history. Yeah, 100%.
1: I mean, there's a joy in watching the games. There's also a joy in searching for and finding them. I found I've gotten a lot of joy from that as well, Uh, remembering some games that i would forgotten about or that I've kind of earmarked. You know, the funny thing is, at this point, I've flagged so many or made mental note of so many, I don't think I'll have time to really watch them all before we have baseball again, which is a great problem to have, even though it's not as, as good as having the real thing right now. So, um, I'm certainly having, having a lot of fun with them. And I think, you know, originally I thought, Oh, this will be a good series for the, the college baseball diehard. And and, I, and that is true. I still believe that to be true. However, I was thinking about the other day and, you know, I think this would be a great series. Um, and if you're listening to this, you're already bought into it, but I, I just, in general, I was thinking that this might be a great series for someone who is kind of checks in on college baseball or maybe follows it once the world series gets started, or maybe has their, you know, their school and then doesn't follow much beyond that, you know, chances are you don't know how these games turn out. I mean, you might know who wins these national titles. So I guess that spoils it a little bit, but there are going to be games in this list that you don't know who wins or loses. And that would be kind of fun to kind of discover college baseball through some of these great games. Some of them are great historically. So um, some of them are kind of just moments in time from the recent past that were great, that, that may not hold up as well. We'll have to see, but um I think so. I think it could be a fun series for people who are really into college baseball, or who are just kind of into college baseball and want to to use this as an entree into the sport.
2: Yeah, I think that you know, even when you know who's going to win, generally, you probably don't know how this game plays out. Like in this game, I knew Oklahoma was going to win. I had no idea how they were going to get there. Uh, you know, and even even watching it, I'd done a modicum of research, so like I knew some like benchmarks. But I, you know, for the most part had largely forgotten them by the time I was watching. Uh I, I certainly didn't know a lot of the details. I don't know, I, I guess some of this just depends on how you like watching your sports. If knowing how it turns out at all is a, a big turn off, well, I mean I, I can't help you in a lot of these cases. But if you're if you're willing just to watch it, knowing kind of generally what might happen, but you know, not knowing the, the specifics of how they're gonna get there, I, I I think these games are great for that. And they're taking you back to, you know, important history in college baseball or, or, or just nice moments in time, uh, you know, to, to go in and check in on the sport. And so, like I mentioned today is the 1994 national championship game. That one took place between Oklahoma and Georgia tech. The Oklahoma team was, you know, a little underrated throughout the course of the season uh, from and we'll get into that a little more with AT uh, here in a couple of minutes, but the, you know, they they were not one of these, uh, you know, big time teams of, of that year, even though they wind up with more than 50 wins and didn't lose a game in the NCAA tournament, they, they were not viewed that way. And I think looking back on that, I would guess a lot of that has to do with they weren't necessarily the most prospecty team. Uh, There were certainly more talented teams. This Georgia Tech team being one of them, this Georgia Tech team has Jason Veritek, Nomar Garcia-Para, and Jay Payton hitting at the top half of its lineup. So those three guys went on to have pretty good big league careers and were amazing college players. Jason Veritek was the Golden Spikes Award winner that year. Uh, Interestingly, that year, Baseball America put out an all-time All-America team and included Jason Veritek as the catcher while he was still an active player. Uh, and, like, I can't even say that Jim Callis was wrong when he did that. You know, like, looking back at that, you know, yeah, that that, that probably was about right for the time. And, uh, you know, I don't think there were being prisoners of the moment about it really much at all. And, you know, here he is in Omaha trying to close out his career with the national championship. And, uh, you know, so th- that's what Oklahoma was up against and Oklahoma winds up kind of taking care of business here and it uh you know it, it was a exciting game despite the fact that the game doesn't come down to the wire or anything but you know I thought Joe and I were both pretty entertained when we were rewatching the game this week
1: yeah for sure it, that Oklahoma team you know was a fun team to watch i mean just in that small snippet but they could do a little bit of everything you're right that they were a little bit underrated and uh, but looking back on it, there's more talent than than I had really given them credit for. The Minor brothers are on that team, and and they both had big league careers, short big league careers, but big league careers nonetheless. I learned that Ryan Minor was actually a, a very good basketball player for OU's basketball team, and then I looked it up, and sure enough, he got drafted in the NBA. Uh, chose to play baseball, but so they were there. And then you know, Mark Redmond and Russ Ortiz had already pitched, and then Bucky Buckles is kind of this cold hero, you know. From it's a college baseball name I've known, and I'd kind of forgotten he was on that team for a while. So. Um, certainly more talented than, than I was giving them credit for. And I think what was kind of fun about this is they really kind of beat Georgia Tech at their own game. I mean, sure, they scored some runs because they really pushed the issue with Georgia Tech. They're, you know, Georgia Tech had kind of a meltdown of a fourth inning, uh, you know, where they they had some sloppy play, and Oklahoma took some extra bases and, and drew, drew a lot of attention on the base paths, but they also hit some home runs, and they slugged a little bit. Um, so it was really just a thorough victory for Oklahoma and, and did it in a way that was – Really impressive, which is in line with everything they've done in the postseason to that point.
2: If you're watching this game on YouTube, or when I pulled it up anyway, one of the first things I was struck by, you know, I knew going into it that, you know, Nomar and Baratek were here uh, in this game. But, you know, there is a ton of star power in this game. You have Nomar and you have Tech and you have Jay Payton, all big leaguers. You know, Joe mentioned that Oklahoma – Oklahoma's biggest names are not on the field this day, but, you know, the Minor brothers are playing. Uh, and, but then you get calling the game is Greg Gumbel. You have Ron Frazier as one of the sideline reporters. The other sideline reporter is Leslie Visser. Uh, and, and, you know, there there's just a, a ton of talent everywhere you look on the field. I mean, Danny Hall and Larry Cashel are, you know, big names in the coaching business and, you get to you get 25 years ago, Danny Hall, which is uh, you know, everyone looks a little bit different 25 years on. But uh, you know that was that was fun to see see him in his first year at Georgia Tech. So there's a lot going on in this game, and uh, you know I think we have uh, a lot to discuss with uh, with Eric Thomas. So let's get to our interview with the former Oklahoma leadoff hitter, uh, Eric Thomas today on the baseball america college podcast we're excited to be joined by eric thomas who played in that 1994 college world series national championship game for oklahoma batting leadoff and playing left field and now is an assistant coach uh at florida uh coaching softball also with his his former teammate tim walton who is the head coach there there at florida of course tim got the the win in that national championship game so quite the Oklahoma connection there in Gainesville now, but AT, uh, you know, how are you doing? I, I know it's an unusual situation, but ha- how are you doing this spring with, uh, trying, trying to manage the, all the the variables being thrown at us these days?
3: Yeah, no question. It is, uh, actually different. Um, something unprecedented right now. And I hope uh, everybody out there is staying safe and staying healthy. And, um, you know, I guess at the most spending more time with family potentially. So, Um, you know, try to turn, turn this situation maybe into a little bit of a positive. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been different just trying to, you know, prod along and figure out, you know, what to do each day.
2: You have two school age kids. Uh, how are you doing on the the whole homeschooling situation?
3: (laughs) Um, well it's, it's, it's different. I have a 12 year old and a 17 year old. And in fact, my daughter just turned 17 a couple days ago so um having a birthday in the house uh with no friends and anything like that was challenging but we made it as good as we could for her um you know she's a year away from going to college she's a junior so you know selfishly mom and dad are um enjoying our extra time with her before we get closer to college um but she's good she she her stuff uh you know, they're advanced, the school she goes to. They do their stuff online. She's got school. She's up and going every day. My son is a little bit more of a challenge. Um, I th- don't think uh, middle schools are prepared um, to do all online class. So he's he's been doing it. He's a good student. Both of them are really good students. Been b- very blessed there. Um, but he, he gets his work done um, quick um, so that he can go do whatever he wants to do afterwards.
2: Yeah, the uh, it's a tricky situation to navigate, I'm sure. I do not envy you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It's what we got to do right now.
2: Well, to uh, to take us off of, off of the, the current situation, let, let's go back to 94. And, and to set the scene there, you guys had swept through the NCAA tournament to that point, uh, winning the regional in Austin and then winning your first few games in Omaha to advance to the finals against Georgia Tech. Just what was the feeling uh, among you guys going into that, that championship game against the Yellow Jackets?
3: Uh, I think our team as a whole, um, we just felt super confident. Um, I don't, you know, we, we just didn't feel like we could be beat. Uh, we, we were kind of an older team, I guess, Exper- experienced a lot of junior college transfers and um, we got along really well. But it was – I don't think there was any doubt um, that we were going to win the game going into the national championship game. And I think that um, was a tribute to, you know, the team and the players that we had on that team.
1: Do you ever look back – I mean, one of the things that's so striking about that Georgia Tech team is just the, the big headline names in that team when you when you talk about Nomar and Jason Veritek and, you know, Jay Payton. And do you ever kind of go back and, and, and look at that the team you beat and kind of marvel at? holy cow, I mean, the level of talent they had, and it, it kind of adds to the accomplishment of what you guys were able to do that, you know, you kind of took apart that team in the final.
3: Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, it, you, you you rewatch the game and, and you know, Jason Veritek's on the all-time Baseball America list at the time, <laughs> and he's a current player. And, and obviously, Nomar and, you know, Jay Payton, and, and they, those guys were special, the numbers that they had, where they were drafted. Um You know they're really good and it's it's funny um to say this but it's almost like that worked to our advantage um i think our team kind of had a chip on their shoulder and you know we we kind of felt overlooked so to speak um i think we were surprised when you know we were picked as a one seed originally and you know people didn't think we were deserving of that so it was just something that we felt like okay we'll show you and then Um, I want want to say, I almost remember one publication had us ranked ninth when we got to the World Series. We weren't even in the top eight. I believe Tennessee might have even been ranked ahead of us that year going into the World Series. And it was just another piece of the puzzle, I think, um, that that worked to motivate our team. And, you know, going into that national championship game, I think – you know, on the surface, everybody thought Georgia Tech was going to win. And again, I think that's, you know, I keep going back to it, but I think that's another thing that kind of worked to our advantage. Like, hey, we got good players here too.
2: And that's kind of crazy to, to think about. Cause I mean, this is a team that ultimately ends up with 50 some wins, doesn't lose a game in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, I know the talent level wasn't, you know, what Georgia Tech had, or, or probably what a couple other teams had, but you know, there's still big leaguers on that team. And uh, some good college players beyond the the, the big leaguers. Uh, you know, they, it, it's kind of wild to think that that it might. You, you guys were such significant underdogs throughout, you know, not only the spring but then into into June as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Like even that World Series, you know, looking back at it, um, you know, Arizona State, State team that we beat twice. Uh, they were loaded. <laughs> they were absolutely loaded, and uh, you know, it's just one of those deals. I think. When you look back on it and you look at our team, um, that team was constructed really well. I mean, I don't know if there was a better complete team. I mean, obviously, we won the national championship, but what we had, you know, from the top to the bottom, the depth on the bench, um, you know, the players that we had, you know, we have some guys that, you know, didn't quite get to the mountaintop into the big leagues, but played, you know, a long time in the minor league baseball at the high levels. But we just had, you know, a team up and down the order. Um, you know, that was pretty special. I mean, it was just, it was just, we kind of had a little bit of everything in there.
2: You, uh, I guess personally were hitless in Omaha until the championship game. Then you, you lead off the day with a hit, you end up getting three hits. Just was there anything different about it or, or is that just, you know, something that happens in baseball sometimes?
3: Uh, well, I think a combination. Um, I just didn't get hits, I guess, but, um, I knew that was going to come up. Uh, everybody's got to (laughs) remind me that. Um, but you made up for it.
2: You had three hits that day. (laughs) I know,
3: I know. I saved it. I saved it. Um, you know, the funny thing is that you say that, but you know, part of it was, you know, when you get to Omaha and you get all the stuff and, you know, we were sponsored by Easton at the time and they, you know, they're rolling out the new bats and whatnot. And that was the first year I think they went to the drop four, at that time. So I made a, 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 probably a bad mistake. I was swinging a thirty three thirty and I went to a thirty four thirty, you know, thinking it was the same weight, different bat. And it was just a little bit different. And I don't know, you know, you know, thinking the new bat was better and I should have probably <laughs> just stayed with the old bat.
1: You, uh, you guys were known for a team that really wanted to kind of press the issue a little bit. You yourself were someone who liked to run, and early on in that game, but one of the things that I was struck by is, you know, you get on base right away, and Al Gogolin is, is really just kind of fixated on you from the very beginning, and I think that, that really helped you guys get off to a quick start. On the other hand, you know, you had Veritech behind the plate, a really talented guy back there. What did you guys think of that matchup coming into that game and, and your ability to still be able to do what you guys wanted to do?
3: Well, and that, that was one of the things that, you know, I, obviously the scouting reports today are way different than scouting reports then, but it didn't take anybody, um, with any kind of baseball intuitive to know that Jason Veritek was probably the best catcher in the country (laughs) and had a good arm behind the plate, but we did a lot, you know, Darwin and I, um, you know, we were one, two hole hitters. We were best friends in high school. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, we knew each other really well. Obviously, Coach Koshel let us play. Um, you know, turned us loose, and you know, uh, I know Ricky and I had the green light, and we could run anytime we wanted. But we, you know, we would have really study the opponent um, as much as we could. You know, obviously, where the bullpens were in Omaha, watching guys warm up. Um, you know, there wasn't video like we have today, but watching them warm up, obviously knowing. Um, you know, pop times from the stopwatch. And I knew, you know, going in, we were going to run. I mean, that was one of the things that, um, you know, I had the green light. Darvin and I would always work really well together where we knew the matchup and, you know, we would talk to coach before the first inning. And, you know, it was always to assume I would get on base and, hey, either Darvin was going to bunt or we we're going to hit and run or, hey, I got this. I can steal in this matchup. And if that was the case, then he would take pitches for me to go. Um, so it was probably, you know, really advanced for the time. Um, but with that, I mean, you can see we hit and run a bunch. Um, and I just knew like, and, and we knew we talked about it before that if we were going to still, we were going to have to get a good jump. It wasn't that in between jump wasn't going to do it. against fair
2: You guys put runs up early. You're a part of that scoring at, uh, in the the first inning there, but you know, they tie it. Nomar and, and, uh, Veritech both hit some pretty significant. Home runs there, uh, but then in the fourth inning, you guys were able to take the lead again and, and put an, a crooked number on the board. Did you guys kind of feel like that was a turning point in the game, or and like feel like the offense was really clicking at that point?
3: Yeah, I think I, I think it goes back to you know the lineup that we had. We just felt like we could score every single inning. Um, you know, there was speed up and down the lineup. You know, uh, we had good hitters. You know, just about everybody was hitting over three hundred. And and the element of the speed, you know, element of the speed didn't go away. You know, every time, you know, you get a guy on and he you know, go two bases, three bases on, you know, a single double, it, it just put pressure on people. And we just knew if we could, you know, just put together good at bats, good at bats, you know, the crooked numbers were going to happen. But I think, you know, part of it was is the pressure that we put on them um, led to some of their defensive miscues. Um, which aided to us scoring more runs.
1: One guy who had a really big CWS for you is Chip Glass. And, uh, you know, he's not really known as a, as a big power guy, but hit with a lot of power in Omaha and had a home run in this championship game. Did, did you ever kind of look around and wonder what had gotten into Chip Glass once you guys got to Omaha?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chip was – he was a grinder. I mean, he just worked hard and did everything. And he was actually struggling going in. and. Um, I wasn't there for the conversation, but uh, supposedly there was a conversation. Hey, Chip, if you don't get it going, I'm going to have to make a change. And he got it going. He answered the bell um, and, and did, you know, not just offensively. I mean, yeah, he, he ended up hitting three home runs, I think, in the World Series and had five on the year. But um, he made a play against Arizona State that basically, you know, you, if you can look back at one play, uh, that wins you a world series it was that play he came out of nowhere made a diving catch in left center um, to to save you know a couple runs especially in that game but um, he he was just you know it was I, I think we all you know we were confident with each other you know um, and if he wasn't getting it done somebody else was getting it done I you know like you said I didn't have hit for a championship game you know other guys picked me up and and that was just a tribute to our team
1: One story that the broadcasters told early in the broadcast was that MJ Mariani was feeling a little bit weak that day, a little under the weather because he'd eaten some bad shrimp Primavera. Can you corroborate this story that it was shrimp Primavera that we can blame for MJ Mariani being a little under the weather? And then also, what do you remember just about his being ready to go? Obviously it's the biggest game of, of of his career and of everyone's career at that point and, and able to kind of tough that out.
3: Yeah. So I wouldn't recommend, um, going and eating Italian food and, uh, bringing it back to your room and putting it on top of the air conditioner and thinking that's going to be as good as a refrigerator and then eating it a a day and a half later so um, that's kind of what happened to MJ and he got yeah he got sick he got you know it was almost like a food poisoning type of deal and um, you know we didn't really know as a group at the time you know obviously he got with the trainer and uh did that and then you know in the morning you obviously find out he's sick i don't know if he's going to go and then you know obviously he was playing no matter what in his mind and and then you know when you know one of your teammates you know feels like that you can tell they're not right but they're going to play anyways it's just kind of another boost for you you know another motivational factor but um yeah so i guess the moral of the story is don't put your food on top of the air conditioner and think it's sufficient that it'll be a refrigerator I'll write that down.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is that is big life advice for sure. That
3: is a true story.
2: That that's that's absolutely incredible and, and an example, I guess, of how different the World Series is. Twenty five years on, you know, and and I guess just you know some of this is just culture in general that we now have you know hotel rooms with refrigerators in them, but <laughs> you know that that would never happen in in today's world.
3: Yeah. Oh no, no, it wouldn't. No, the way the, the way we feed athletes now, it would never happen. You wouldn't. You don't need yeah. leftovers.
2: Yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah. You know, so as the game goes on, and and you guys get Bucky Buckles in, who had been so good all year for you, you know, how much relief is it? Not not relief, but just how good does that feel, knowing that, that that's the guy on the mound to to finish this out. Even though at that point you have somewhat of a, a significant lead.
3: Yeah, you just know. Yeah, when he came in, you knew it was over. It was. It was, It. It was always over. I mean it was one of the you know he'd walk out of that bullpen and and strut in and and come in and and we just knew like you know it's like anything else any any team you see um I guess he was like our Mariano Rivera I mean you just knew it was over you knew the game was over when he told the rubber if you had the lead um he wasn't going to give up the lead he was just that good at that time and um you know again we had you know the confidence and You know, everybody, you know, everybody that pitched in that game. But um, our defense was so good. And I think that's something that may not get talked about enough in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, the speed we had in the outfield and, you know, obviously, you know, I know we set a school record that year, turned double plays with what we had in the infield. I mean, those guys, you know, I think Ricky, I want to say he only made two errors on the entire season. Um, And, you know, him and Rich up the middle. But the type of pitcher that, you know, Bucky was and then the other two guys that threw after Lovinger, you know, Tim, obviously, and and Sean Snyder, they got a lot of ground balls. And so that that infield defense just, you know, made every play. But yeah, I mean, the confidence we had when, when Bucky got in the game, we knew the game was over. They talked a little bit on the
1: broadcast about how how Bucky Buckles also had a knuckleball, and at the time he wasn't using it with a freshman catcher behind the plate. Had you seen this knuckleball? Like, was this thing nasty, Was or was it something that he said he threw that maybe was never going to get used? I'm curious how much of a knuckleball Bucky Buckles actually had versus it was just kind of something he he would say he had.
3: Okay, so I'm going to disclose an embarrassing moment in my life. Uh, we uh, Bucky transferred to us. Um, at the semester, and so um, you know, Coach Shell had told us, "Hey, we got this transfer pitcher. He's going to be really good for us." You know, blah blah. Hey, what's his name? And he said, "Bucky Buckles." And you know, when you hear the name Bucky Buckles, there's you know, obviously, well, okay, how good is this guy? Really, he better be really good. <laughs> uh, so the first inter-squad game we had, um, I walk up to the plate, and he's on the mound. And the first pitch, he throws me slider. And, you know, I take it for a strike. I'm thinking to myself, you know, a lot of times I'm going to watch a pitch anyways off somebody new. Uh, I'm like, okay, first pitch slider to me, fine, whatever. And I step out, I step back in. Next pitch, he throws me the knuckleball. And I'm like, my eyes kind of like shake Oh, whoa, Strike two. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then, so now I'm down 0-2. And I've seen slider and knuckleball. And, of course, he comes with the fastball. Right in on my hands, um, you know whatever it was at that time, and probably in the low 90s. Boom! I turn around, walk back to the dugout, and Coach Shell's got a smile on his face and looks at me. Pretty good stuff, huh? And I just kind of slam my bat in the back rack and my helmet. I know it's an inter-squad game, but I don't ever want to strike out. And I didn't even swing the bat. I just kind of walked off. <laughs> so um, I guess I was the first one to be introduced to the stuff. But yeah, it was good. It was good. The slider was good you could spot the fastball and it had some run to it. And, and then that knuckleball was just something you just didn't ever see. The thing was he could command it and it did da- and it danced.
2: That, you know, that is kind of the the rarity that you you see guys with one or the other on the knuckleball, but you really have to have two of them working in concert. Otherwise it, it doesn't work at all.
3: Well, and I think that's why he was so good. You know, that was why, you know, the fastball played up because of, you know, the command on the slider and the speed differential. But um, you know, throwing, you know, like you just didn't see knuckleball. Like you just didn't see it. And I know like a lot of broadcasters, you know, again, scouting reports are different. They would say he threw a knuckle curve, well, it was slider and knuckleball. So kind of uh, maybe that helped us out too.
2: So the, you guys win the title, uh, the dog pile celebration. What, what do you remember about the, the aftermath returning home or, uh, you know, just the, the celebration o- overall.
3: Uh, it was just surreal. You know, I mean, things like that, they just don't set in right away. Um, you know, you work so hard. And, you know, like I said, you are you know, we were confident uh, as a team. And, you know, you feel like, I mean, every, you know, I don't want to say everybody, but, you know, there's a handful of teams every year that feels like that's going to be the end. And, and all of a sudden it's the end. And, you know, you dogpile and, and then it, it's just chaos after that, you know, um, from the time you walk off the field and, um, you know, we get back to the hotel and, and Ricky grabs Coach Koschel and he threw him in the pool at the hotel and, um, you know, we're, we're celebrating. And then um, I just remember our, our flight home, um, the NCAA put us on a, a, a really early flight <laughs> So so we had we had a scramble, you know, amongst the chaos and then pack and then we got and then I think our layover was actually um in St. Louis and we had like a two-hour layover and we were just all passed. I just remember seeing our whole team passed out, like on the ground, like everybody was out asleep. And then we got on the bus and um or no that we got back on the plane and then we landed in Oklahoma City and there's, you know, back in the days, this was pre 9-11. I mean, there's people standing at the gate waiting on us. So we walk out and it's crazy and there's people. And, you know, we, at that time, we would go down to the freight area where we would load the, we get our bags and go to the freight area and we'd get there and we got a police escort out of there. And I mean, we're just being, we're gassed, obviously from everything. And, um, as we get closer uh, to our field, there's like people standing everywhere like you can see them as you're going in and there's this huge celebration that we didn't even have any idea that was planned and uh, i guess luckily for me in a sense i was you know rich and i would always sit in the very back seat and uh nobody wanted the trophy (laughs) the trophy kept getting passed back all the way to me at that point because everybody was so exhausted so um, I'm the last one off. I got the trophy, and then they had this big—you know—we walked basically up the tunnel through our bags and walking up the tunnel, and the stadium was full of people. And you know, they declare it, you know, Oklahoma Sooner Day, and uh, then the next thing you know, they turn everybody loose, and for as long as I can remember, I was signing autographs. <laughs> I mean, there was just people everywhere, um, and then you're signing autographs, and then it's just—it's just. It's just that was probably after that was kind of the first time that we just kind of like got to relax a little bit when we got back to our apartment.
1: You mentioned, uh, before we went on air here, just to give listeners peek behind the curtain, you mentioned that, that you guys had just recently had a reunion for this, I guess, you know, coming up, uh, just 25 years this last fall. Um, what was that day? Like, um, how cool was that to be able to get back together and celebrate, um, that again, 25 years afterward?
3: Um, you know, it's really special. I, I just, again, our team was so close. I mean, we were so close. Um, and, you know, we've got a group text that we still have, um, that we all, you know, kind of, you know, are involved in and, you know, getting to go back and see everybody. Obviously we're all, um, you know, I watched that, that, that game. And, you know, I, the first thing I noticed I had a whole lot more hair then. um, but, uh, you know, the reunion was really cool. And, For a lot of us, I think, probably most of us, it was more about our kids. You know, going back, and it was really important for me to take the whole family back because, you know, my wife's an alum in Oklahoma. And, um, you know, my son doesn't really remember. He wasn't, you know, when I was there, he wasn't really there. My daughter kind of grew up there a little bit. Um, But for them to kind of get to embrace a part of that um, and understand a little bit about, you know, what their dad did, I guess, is a team, you know, in a team, and um, so it's really cool. I mean, that, that 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 part of it for me and a lot of us, I'm sure, um, for the kids to kind of do it. But obviously, seeing faces and you know, we get together and it's like a day hasn't passed. Um, we we just you know, it's funny, and, and you don't really talk about the games. I mean, nobody, you nobody, I know, you know, as a coach now, you try to tell your players that and whatnot. It's it's the journey, you know, it's, it's the, the process, it's the, you know, the stories along the way that make it, you know, obviously that build a relationships. So that's why, you know, when you get together, it's like a day hasn't passed the time because of that.
2: You mentioned you, you try and impart that on your players now, now that you're on uh, the softball side at, at Florida with, uh, with Tim Walton, does this ever come up with them that, you know, they ever mention the, the championship or, or talk about you guys as, as players?
3: Well, they did this year because we, you know, Tim and I have obviously left one weekend for um, in the fall for the reunion. So they did. And then, you know, um, a couple of them, I think, watched the game and kind of you know joked around with us, you know, that we looked a lot different then. <laughs> um, but yeah, not really. I mean, you know, as a whole, not really, I don't think, you know, I don't like talking about it. As much, I guess, you know, I like the, you know, the camaraderie with the teammates and, and, and that kind of stuff. You know, it's not something, you know, in the coaching gen, gen you know, when, when you coach, you just don't like, you know, when you talk to players, I don't use it. Hey, I did this or, you know, this, 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 and this. Maybe it's a little piece of work, but, they, you know, like players, they don't care you know, what you did, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, they're consumed in their game and you're just trying to make them better and, and using what you can to make them better. But yeah, not usually does it come up.
2: But you've uh, now been at Florida for a couple of years doing the softball thing after many years in, in the baseball game. What was that transition like for you and, and how much are you enjoying, uh, you know, what,
3: what you're doing now? Yeah, no, I really enjoy it. Obviously getting to work with one of my best friends um, on a daily basis is really cool Um, You know, you know, Tim and I were teammates and roommates at one point. So that's, you know, that's, you know, that's the people that you're around, you know, and it's fun. Um, You know, the game's a lot different. Um, You know, it's just a lot different. 60-foot bases, 200-foot fences, they don't move, you know, from the time, that you know, players start playing in high school. The fences don't really move anymore. So um, it's a lot different. It's a lot quicker. And so you know, from a hitting standpoint, a lot of it's the same, but you know, a lot of the strategy in game strategy changes a little bit. So it's different. It's cool. It's fun. It's, it's fun to learn at this point in your career.
2: Absolutely. Well, you had uh you had a pretty good team there uh, as, as they always do down in Florida. So hopefully we're able to get back, uh, get back rolling soon and, and, and you guys are able to get back uh, out on the diamond uh, next, next fall and spring.
3: No doubt. Appreciate that. I hope so. <laughs>
2: We're all, we're all itching for it. I know that. Well, AT, it was, uh, it was great to have you here on the podcast. We really enjoyed uh, going back down memory lane with you in in this uh, 94 national championship game.
3: Well, I appreciate you having me on, Teddy. It's awesome. Um, You know, thank you so much for, you know, bringing attention to this team again. Um, You know, obviously in my life, it was a really, really special, you know, special time, great memories. And, um, you guys always do a great job at baseball America, you know, doing stuff like this and and bringing attention and, and bringing it back in the spotlight again. So, you know, appreciate it. Obviously appreciate our relationship too and uh, getting to catch up a little bit.
2: Thank you again to AT for joining us here on the baseball America college podcast. That was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, disclosure here, I guess. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking with AT back when he was uh, in the baseball coaching business since he got into softball. I haven't had as much of an opportunity to do so. So it was fun uh, to to catch up with him uh, to talk about this 1994 national championship game. And uh, he had a really nice day there for the Sooners. Honestly, I don't think I realized quite how good of a player he was previous to to like a week ago when I started looking into this game more. So that was also a, a fun discovery as well. Joe, when, when we look at this game and, and what we just talked about with AT, um, you know, I know we, we talked, mentioned before the start of the interview, just how much star power there was on the field. And I don't know, let's just start there. When you, when you look at this game, especially from the Georgia Tech side, what, what, uh, you know, what stands out about watching Veritech and Nomar and Jay Payton as, as college players?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, one of the first things I was struck by is, of course, Nomar is hitting leadoff, and he steps into the batter's box, and it is the exact same pre-pitch yes. routine as it always <laughs> has been.
2: Which was, I now haven't seen in a decade, so that was cool, too.
1: Yeah, it was kind of neat, and the swing is the same. He hits a home run in this game, and it's like, it's a Nomar swing. Like, not much had changed, and who could blame him? He was hitting, like, you know, four-something at Georgia Tech. But uh, Which leads me to my second point is that I knew these guys were really good college players. Um but their stats, at one point they put CBS put a graphic up that had the three of them, Peyton, Veritek, and Nomar, on a graphic that just kind of showed their basic stats, and they were just absurd. I mean, they they were all hitting better than 415, 420. Um, they all had double-digit home runs, which, okay, 1994, college baseball, so you're, you're going to have that. But, I mean, the, the numbers were just off the charts good. Um, so I I've probably, as much as, as even you and I have spent talking about the star power on that team I was probably actually underrating like just to, from a statistical standpoint how dominant that group was and, and you mentioned Danny Hall looking as young as he did and when they were going through lineup I kind of thought about how old Jason Baratek looked um, <laughs> relative to uh, you know he looks about the same as he did when he finished playing a couple of years ago you know he really looks pretty similar to me it's kind of funny he's just one of those guys that's always maybe looked a little bit older than he was and now maybe looked younger than he is I don't know but um, it, so it really does kind of put into sharp relief just what Oklahoma was up against. And, and AT talked about, you know, we kind of, it kind of gave us an edge that, that we were um, underrated and, and overlooked and going up against this team that, that people thought were um, he did, AT did not use these words, but I can imagine in 1994, there was like a little bit of a coronation going on with this Georgia Tech team. How could you not think that? Um, and so they, they kind of took that personally and um, you know, it, just seeing it put that way, really, like I said, put it in sharp relief, just what this Oklahoma team was up against and what they accomplished. And A.T. downplayed, it. it's not maybe not the right way to put it, but he just kind of said, you know, we used that as fuel, and, um, you know, that's kind of what helped us along. But, my goodness, they were they were really at a steep uphill climb. And, and the extent to which they just picked apart Georgia Tech on this day um, was was really, really a sight to behold. And, and from minute one, you could see it. I mean, Eric Thomas gets a single, he gets on first base, you know uh, Georgia Tech's pitcher is clearly preoccupied um, and then it starts from there. and so they 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 had a, clearly had a plan and from minute one they executed and that's how you end up with a with a blowout win.
2: I um, looking at this I, i'm I'm really struck by what Oklahoma did in the tournament. so they get the the one seed like like a team mentioned that was a bit of a surprise to some people and they get sent. To Austin as the one, and Texas is hosting as the three. And now, back then, you know, in, in that NCAA tournament format, the idea of hosting wasn't what it is today, and, uh, you know, all the rest of that. But so they're on the, they, they get sent down there, I, I think, because Oklahoma State gets to stay close to home. I believe they were in Oklahoma City for their regional. So Oklahoma. You know, deemed not even the best team in their state. I guess goes down to to Austin, sweeps through that regional, and then sweeps through their bracket in Omaha. And like he mentioned, that Arizona State team was really good that they beat, and they had to beat them twice, and they wind up, you know, just rolling through the tournament as a, you know, the the you know from from top to bottom of this thing. And so that that was really impressive to me, just the way that that happened. And, you know, I we didn't really get into, you know, if anything specific clicked for them, you know, once the tournament started, or if that was just kind of the way they'd been playing and, and for whatever reason, people hadn't realized it. But, you know, certainly from what we saw, they looked like the best team in the country, even though, you know, they weren't probably the most talented team.
1: Uh, first of all, shouts to two seed Nevada in that regional. How about that? Um, just um, uh, it's, it's looking back at these old, I could do this all. Like honestly, I could do that all day. Just like going year by year in the NCAA tournament and looking at the old brackets and stuff. It's just kind of a fun little simple pleasure of mine. But but Nevada is a two seed. How about that? Shouts to the Wolf Pack. Um, we talked about the real turning point for me was, um, and this is so your point about maybe things clicking or, or maybe they were just that good. I think you kind of see it in that that fourth inning I alluded to where it just felt like everything was was going right I mean right down to there's this this call where there's a second run, I think it was Chip Glass actually who we talked about with AT was the trail runner uh, trying to make it a two-run RBI hit and apparently he ran through a stop, stop sign of Larry Koschel's that the broadcast team noted that and so he tries to go in standing up, which was ill-advised. Um, and Veritek appears to, it's, I mean, it's, it's closer than it looked, he I think. to
2: have tagged him.
1: I think so. Like, he, it, my initial, I wrote down in my notes, awful call in bottom four. And then they showed oh, a couple Jason of Oh, re- Jason
2: Veritek thought it was awful, too. Jason Veritek goes absolutely livid.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's, that, he, he, he went after the umpire in a way that you don't really see much anymore.
2: I thought he might Colorado. assault the umpire, honestly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no kidding. If I was the umpire, I'd have been frightened, frankly. I mean, Jason Veritek looked like he was 36 years old and a grown man. Um, But so that was, to be charitable, a bang bang play. I thought Runner was out. Um, I think the replays show that he was out. Um, Umpire was a little bit. Um, I'm not an expert on umpire mechanics, so I don't want to just put this on him. But the broadcast suggests the umpire was a little out of position and got blocked a little bit. So we'll, we'll give him that benefit of the doubt. Although I guess saying he was out of position isn't really giving him benefit of the doubt. But um, but things really start to come together in that fourth inning, and, and that's where I, you know, I have to imagine that Doug Gettle felt like, okay, we're, you know, we've kind of, uh, you never can really take your foot off the gas, especially in 1990s college baseball, where, you know, a team could put seven, eight runs on you like it's nothing, but I have to imagine it was at that point where it started to sink in a little bit that like, okay, we're, we're really in the driver's seat here and we've got them on the ropes. And it, I mean, that's kind of how it felt. I mean, Georgia Tech comes back and makes it a four, four game early on, but then that fourth inning Oklahoma pulls away. And it, um, it, from that, I guess maybe it's easy to say this because I knew that Oklahoma wins that game, but it really never felt like, and this is a credit to the bullpen including Tim Walton that it never really felt like Georgia Tech got back in the ball game. And, you know, with that offense they very easily could have gotten back into that ballgame um that that's certainly within the realm of possibility but oklahoma just never let it happen and and it was in that fourth inning that you were like okay this like clearly this was just um kind of a team of destiny situation uh with the way things are going there was a a, a misplayed bunt and there was that that play at the plate and there were some balls that just fell in that weren't really hit that hard it was it was really kind of and georgia tech started walking people um, there were a lot of things happening there. They all kind of conspired to to have one nightmare inning for the Yellow Jackets, and that was
2: all she wrote. Yeah, I mean, t- ultimately makes four errors in the game, which is a, a huge part of it. And Oklahoma plays clean defense. And, you know, like AT was saying, that was a, a big part of what they what they were about. And, you know, I, the other thing that, that struck me is when we talked about the 95 game two weeks ago, we talked about how the pitchers were not getting managed the way we would expect to see them managed today, that Augie, um, you know, and, and uh, the, Michael Espy, there it is, uh, they both had pretty long leashes for their starting pitchers that day. Well, in this case, Larry Cashel does not have any sort of leash, and for any of his pitchers. Like, he just wants to get the ball to Bucky Buckles, and once he did that, I imagine Bucky was in the game to be in the game, but Everything up until that, it was, you know, you you have until you get into trouble, basically, which is more the way that we would see a team managed today in a must-win scenario, especially in a must-win scenario where your pitching is basically lined up the way you want it to be. Because, you know, while Russ Ortiz and um, Redmond weren't available, apparently, uh, they, you know, Oklahoma still, you know, had won every game in Omaha and had had an off day, so they they largely had their pitching where they anticipated it being. And you know, it, it sure seemed like Cashel was just going to going to make sure no one ever got overextended. That they were they were just going to keep going and getting fresh arms when they needed to, which is how a lot of today's coaches would manage uh, a, a game of this magnitude.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because it was funny. On the last episode, we talked about Larry Koshell being ahead of the game in terms of being the type of coach who would take a job across the country just for better opportunity. And maybe he was ahead of the game in, in more ways than one in, in that way because you're right. He was really just intent on he, – he, he had an idea of who he wanted to close the game, but beyond that, you just kind of felt like the only idea was, I'm just going to cycle through guys and get us to the end. And, you know, I think it would be a temptation, especially in those days, to just kind of leave somebody out there. Uh, until they sh- made it clear to you they could not throw anymore as long as you had the lead. And uh, he went the other direction, and it clearly worked. Like I said, they just kind of suffocated that game away, and um, that was that was ultimately uh, obviously a great play by, by Coach Cochell there. Um, I, I wanted – this is kind of a, a right turn here, but you mentioned before we started our interview um, with AT, you mentioned that there was a lot of star power around the game on CBS. Do you feel like – obviously no one would argue – college baseball against the fact that college baseball is in a is a in a more prominent better more visible place in today's sports landscape it's not where we want it to be you and i specifically but it, it is what it is but nobody would argue against that i don't think but do you feel like be, maybe it's just because the game was on big cbs back then the championship game and it was through 02? um texas south carolina was the last one in o2 that was on cbs
2: um i like that you just know that
1: <laughs> I remember where I was sitting when I watched it. Um, but maybe it's just because it was on big CBS. Maybe that's part of it. Um, but, and I wasn't really, you know, I remember watching the O2 and, and, you know, uh, 2000, 99, 99 through O2, I remember fairly well. Before that, not so much. And, and But I wasn't thinking of it this way back then. Do you feel like maybe while the game is in a bigger place now, a bigger deal was maybe made of like that national title game. And maybe just because it was on big CBS. And I know that Gumble and Sean McDonough from the 95 game were not the household names they are now necessarily, but they were still pretty big deals within CBS sports, which at that time was kind of a behemoth. I just wonder if maybe, and I'm not saying I'd prefer to go back to those days, but I just wonder if maybe a bigger deal was made of the title game specifically just because of the circumstances being what they were then
2: well i think that in some respects yes so but also because you know back then says the 30 year old who was four when this game happened um but the (laughs) i'm in no real position to lecture on the the state of broadcast and cable television back in 1994 but you know back then I remember growing up, like you didn't have a whole lot of sports options, right? So you you just had, we didn't have cable at, at that time. So whatever ABC, NBC, or CBS, or Fox, a, a couple years down the line, decided to put on, like, that was what you had. And, you know, events weren't necessarily jammed into primetime just to jam events into primetime the way that we do today. So this game is happening in the middle of the afternoon uh, in Omaha. And CBS is devoting a whole afternoon to it. So, like I, I think on that level, yeah, the more more is being put on it because they don't have the inventory to act like any live sporting event is not a big deal. That if they're going to put a game on live, I mean, th- this is kind of the whole point of wide world of sports, I think, is that ABC decides that whatever goes on wide world of sports is important, and it doesn't matter if it's skiing or skating or whatever like they're going to act like it's a huge thing and throw big time talent at it. So I think some of that's going on. And you know you just can't replicate that today. I do think ESPN tries to make a pretty big deal out of the college world series and you've seen them try and make a bigger deal of it throughout the last decade. Every once in a while they bring the baseball tonight desk uh you know to Omaha. I guess they don't do that anymore because baseball tonight doesn't really exist as a show anymore, but uh you know buster only spent like a week in omaha uh not that long ago and you know just doing baseball tonight from td ameritrade so you know i i think that the bigness that this game had is something that you can't return to because of what tv has become in the last 25 years but i i do think that it would be kind of cool if it was that big on the other hand uh, you know, Greg Gumbel and Jeff Torborg. I don't think did any other college baseball games throughout the year, and I can't imagine how they would have if they did. And uh, it showed. So, you know, having a dedicated set of college baseball broadcasters on ESPN during the World Series is an incredible thing that we shouldn't take for granted. And even though Carl Ravitch's main job is not doing college baseball, and and he winds up calling the finals. Um, you know, he does, you know, they, they've made it so that he, he has to go out and do some college baseball before the NCAA tournament starts. And he goes out and does it. And, uh, you know, as long as he's been doing the World Series now, I you know, it, it is, it's helping. And, but, you know, to have Kyle Peterson and Chris Burke and Ben McDonald, uh, Edgar, Ed, Eduardo Perez, and, and all the rest of those guys hanging around and available and, and in the booth in, in some of their cases, like, I think that that that's a big benefit to college baseball overall and to the ESPN broadcast of the World Series.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. That's, a, that's been a big, a big deal that, that they've kind of cultivated a college baseball, a group of college baseball announcers that, that do a really good job with it. And obviously some are more um, immersed in the sport than others, uh, you know, at various points, but they all do a really good job with it. And that's something that, that you just, you know, at, at different points in college baseball's history you just didn't see. I don't, you know i don't think it was from a lack of of caring or, or just an assumption that anybody could do the job but but i do think uh, more care is given now to making sure that the folks they have doing uh, doing college baseball um, are are more just aware of what's going on in college baseball and the differences in the game and um, and things of that nature but i mean what you say i think is right i mean i think it's a, it was a time and place thing with the college world series on CBS being being what it is another way in which it's very different than what you'd see today is you know they've got um, you know, the sideline folks uh, it was Michelle Tafoya in the 95 game uh, interviewing like luminaries and stuff that are just sitting in the stands. Like now, granted, it's like the first row of the stands, but they're just sitting in the stands, which, you know, is obviously not where they would be sitting at TD Ameritrade Park, you know. Uh, so that's always just kind of, that's an interesting relic from from the past that uh, that was where those, those interviews were conducted behind, you know, some you know, it, a couple rows in front of some family of five of locals, you know, is the, you know, somebody from the NCAA and, you know, some legendary coach uh, just kind of sit, sitting there in the sun just like everybody else. So that's, uh, that's kind of a fun part of it as well. But it's, um, I, I think those differences, you know, that came to mind just cause I was thinking about how different the presentation was um, and it's mostly for better now. Uh, but it was just interesting to me that it felt like a big deal was being made on CBS, and to your point, it was because you know what else were they going to show, especially in late June—not exactly a a hot time for sports that uh, aren't played with a bat and a ball.
2: Yeah, and um, you know, I the the point about the college broadcasters being immersed in the game, like I don't think that can be underplayed. I don't mind like bringing this up because Jeff Torborg said this 25 years ago, and probably doesn't remember. You know, I I don't know how many people remember him saying this even, but. You know, at one point in in the broadcast, he says, "You know, I don't know what they do in college, but in MLB, X and like, I mean, this is what's happening in the national championship game. Like that, that's what's happening on the in the broadcast booth. Uh, you know, that that is not good. And the fact that we've moved well beyond that, uh, I, I think, is is a big positive. And I'm not saying you never hear similar things said, but they certainly wouldn't be said in a way that it's I don't know what college baseball does in this situation, but here's what I'll tell you about what we did in the big leagues. Uh, you know, that that has been removed from, you know, the the announcer lexicon or uh, what we would expect to hear while watching a college baseball game, I think, throughout the country, not just during Omaha, though it's important that, but also if you just turn on any college baseball game at any time th- throughout the season. Uh, so. Getting back to the game, Joe, you noted Nomar blew a cleat out. And I'll be honest, I missed this. So I'm going to need you to explain what what happened to Nomar. Yeah, good
1: call. I almost forgot about it. I even wrote it in, the, in our show doc so I didn't forget. And here I am. Like, I was ready to just, like, totally forget about it. So they, they showed – I don't even remember the context of it. But at one point they showed a close-up. I don't know if he was in the field or if he was in the batter's box or they just caught it in the dugout. They caught a close-up of his cleat. And like his toe is showing, like the cleat is just like blown open on the front. And Jeff Torborg made a good point. He was like, maybe he had a blister or something like that. And he's, you know, uh, there was maybe some swelling going on and he, you know, they did that in order to give, make it more comfortable for him. And I guess that's a possibility, but I'm betting it was more just like a superstition thing. And he had that same pair of cleats um, that he'd been wearing for however long. But it just struck me as speaking of differences in the game, for a lot of reasons, that would probably just not fly today. Like, you do have some superstitious things that result in, uh, you know, Trevor Bauer's hat at UCLA, which was notably gross. Uh, you see, you know, pine tarred helmets. That Fresno State team in 08, seem seen, remember, having a bunch of, like, really gross caked-on pine-tar helmets. So you see stuff like that. But I just can't imagine, A, with – the way these teams today are sponsored very visibly by outfitters and also just with how good the infrastructure around college baseball is that you know that very well may have been the only pair of cleats nomar had on him maybe it was one of two pairs and he really the one the extra pair was just in case literally the shoe fell apart around his foot um but now i can just the teams travel with so much of that gear and they have so much available to them. And like I said, the infrastructure around college baseball is is so good that I just cannot imagine a scenario where a player, especially in the college world series, Tuesday game against, you know, name your low major school perhaps, but in the college world series, there's no way a player of that stature is playing with a cleat that has the toe blown out of it. Like there's just no way.
2: No, I, I would agree on that. I mean, just think about all the endless hours that were devoted to Zion Williamson shoe two years ago and like a different situation in, in some respects there, but like they, they would, it would, it would get noticed if Nomar were playing the game today and and that something like that was happening. So yeah, I, I, that's a, that's a good call. And you know, the I've this week, basically my, my TV during working hours has, just been living on ESPNU, which is mostly showing old football games. And today uh, being Thursday, they've like rolled the clock pretty far back. And uh, right now the 1997 SEC championship game for football is on and it's remarkable how long, I mean, these, this game, the, the 94 college world series title game that we're talking about. And this game that's on my TV right now, the 97 SEC football championship game, like they're not played that far off from each other but it's incredible just to see how far football has changed since then. Whereas, you know, the things that we're talking about changing in college baseball for the most part, aren't about how the game has been played. You know, there, we talked a little bit about it with, uh, you know, with the pitching strategy, but for the most part, they're playing the game pretty similarly. It's just these things around the game that are different. But if, I mean, what what's happening in this, in this football game is just wildly different from, from what you would see today. Um, the Auburn quarterback just basically assaulted one of his linemen for jumping off sides or not snapping from the ball. It's not clear to me. Uh, like stuff like that is happening. They're playing with fullbacks and everything. So it's, it's just interesting to see, you know, when we watch one of these games from the 90s, how, how much things have changed, but also how much has stayed, stayed the same in college baseball. Yeah, it's really funny you
1: compared 94 and 97, just because, you know, my formative years as a sports fan, guess kind of start I'm a couple years older than you and I guess they kind of start in 94 but I really don't remember much of of 94 I kind of vaguely remember the baseball strike because I came not shockingly from a a baseball family and um, I kind of remember that happening but very vaguely and I certainly wasn't sitting down and watching baseball you know in the evenings that was not how I was spending my time at that age but by 97 I was playing paying pretty close attention to baseball in particular but I also kind of knew about basketball and, and, and football and college football in particular because my, my family was also into college football. I, I did grow up in Texas after all. Um, and it's funny because 1994 might as well be 1973 to me. Like in terms of how long ago it was and like watching the game yesterday, it felt like it was from just this bygone era. And then if you ask me about a game from 1997, I'd be like, yeah, I wasn't that long. <laughs> I was watching that game, and that's three years apart. So it's just funny how the brain works, um, you know. And when you're 16 years old, like those three years are a long time apart. You know, that is a big difference in your life. But now I'm 32, and I'm looking back, and those three years, like three years ago, feels like five minutes ago. So like I know I'm veering into like the nostalgia territory here, and like lamenting how quickly time passes. But it is funny how the brain works with. 94 being like, I don't know, my dad's time, and then 97 being something that I feel like I wasn't that long ago because I remember vividly. And yet, to your point, um, really kind of the same era of, of sports.
2: One more thing about this game before we, uh, before we put a bow on it is the dog pile. And the dog pile was an aggressive dog pile, is, is I think the best way I can explain it uh oklahoma was very eager to make this happen which is kind of interesting given that they had all this time to set it up it was clear they were going to win uh there was there was no plan for this dog pile they just they rolled right out of the dugout and so much so fast that three players fell on their way trying to get into the dog pile it was a, a bit of a stampede situation and I don't know. I mean, Joe, have you seen anything like that? I mean, it it can't be a unique dog pile situation, even in Omaha, but I can't remember seeing a dog pile that was that aggressively done and that had that much carnage before the dog pile even begins.
1: Yeah, aggressive is a good way to put it. That's that's it's really good you put it that way because I was struggling to describe it too. It, it ends up being a dog pile. I'd have to go back and. Don't they watch, don't but, get
2: to the pitcher's mound. Yeah, but it, like,
1: it, it was like a very shallow dog pile.
2: <laughs> they barely got past <laughs> the the third baseline.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was it was a strange one, and I I'd like to believe the guys who uh, and I don't know if, if we'd ask him I don't know if at could have even told you who the guys were that stumble out of the gate, but because uh, you know he was coming from from the outfield, so. Um, but i'd like to believe that those guys like and it's clear on the video this is not the case but like i'd like to believe i'd be this type of player like i do not want to be at the bottom of the dog pile now i've never been at the bottom of the dog pile <laughs> um however maybe maybe it's an article i can pitch next next year is to get me to the bottom of the dog pile so i can write about it but um i'd like to believe they were just you know really being really heady about it like look if we trip out of the box like we can get everybody (laughs) piled up first and by the time we get up and get there we won't be quite so far down so i uh that's the way i'd like to think i'd approach it now like i said clearly they got their feet tangled up and that wasn't the case at all but uh it ends up being i mean that was definitely a dog pile you probably didn't want to be near the bottom of because that was they were not holding back in any way shape or form
2: i mean a, a thing that i'm just now thinking of is that like we now see things like dog piles get practiced uh, and it's meant to be like a, a fun thing. Like, uh, you know, we have to, we have to know what we're doing when we go to do this. So like, we're going to, in the fall, we're going to dog pile. And um, you know, it's, it's a reward for, for the team or whatever. I'm going to bet that, a that, that stuff definitely didn't happen. Uh, but also, you know, I, just with their so much more like, uh, myth is the wrong word, but just like so much more around Omaha and around these dog piles. Like, I think players are probably thinking about them a little more. Whereas back then, they were probably just a little more raw. Like, where now you see guys like who are very clearly like they have made it that they have set it up so that they will be at the top of the dog pile, not necessarily just so that they're not at the bottom and you know, who knows what's going on there, but just so that they're uh you know there for the photo at the top i'm i'm thinking of you jake mangum if you're if you're listening uh like jake made it it was excellent at getting on the top of mississippi state's dog piles and you might say well teddy he had to run in from center field of course he's at the top well i mean yes but also jake mangum's like the fastest player on the field he doesn't have to be the last one on the dog pile um so that the i maybe back then they it was just a little a little less of a, a science and a little more of a, whatever, whatever happens happens. And I guess the reason why it happened over by the third baseline is because that's where the final out final out is a chopper from Veritech that gets fielded over by the third baseline. And so that's just where, you know, a couple players from Oklahoma were because they were going, moving towards the ball and, and that, that's where their dugout was. So maybe that's why they didn't even make it to the pitcher's mound and why it was a little more chaotic. Yeah, that very well well could be.
1: You know, at least they went for it, though. Like, one of the things that that, uh, I laugh about is when you have these, like, in-between dog piles where, like, you know, I think you especially see this maybe when um, the last out kind of ends with several players congregating in one area and you end up with a few players doing, like, the stand-up jump-hugging thing. And then it's kind of incumbent upon them to go down at some point to get the dog pile started. So you end up with a little bit of a delayed dog pile and that's kind of awkward. So at least they really went for it. Like there's no confusing what they were going for there and and they nailed it.
2: That's very true. I, one of the better ones in recent memory is definitely Oregon States in 2018 when Adley Rutschman, who is a, you know, really good high school football player and and he was more than just a kicker i know that's what he did for Oregon state but he was like an all state linebacker in Oregon and he got able to the ground very very well very easily he he definitely put put a hit on on his pitcher and got the dog pile started in a in a very organized and and, and clean uh fashion to to make one of the better ones for the beavers there all right so enough about dog piles Maybe maybe one day we'll we'll really get into the science of dog piles. There, there's a story there. Uh, but Joe, we have we have another game to do next Friday when we uh, resume this series. Why don't you tell the folks what we're going to watch so that they can uh, try and uh, you know get it queued up on their on their computer or t- smart TV. However you're watching these games, there on YouTube. Uh, what what are the folks going to be looking for this week?
1: This one comes with a trigger warning too, and we're talking to you, Nebraska fans. Uh, this is the 2006 Lincoln Regional. It's the opener for Nebraska that year. This is the, the post-Alex Gordon year, um, but it is a Java Chamberlain year. Uh, 06, Lincoln Regional, Nebraska, and Manhattan. Uh, the tiny Manhattan Jaspers. Um, they went to Lincoln as a, as a heavy underdog, um, and they play their way to a win against the hosting Nebraska uh, in the, in that opener, uh, they had a pitcher on the mound named Chris Cody, uh, who was very, very good, um, and not just good in like he had a good day, like he was a very good pitcher for them, and, and he had a pro career and uh, all of that, uh, but was absolutely outstanding on that day. It is a game that that means a lot to me because it is one of those games where I remember where I was when I watched it, not because I necessarily knew what was going to happen or, but, you know, this was the day before there were a lot of regional games on television and. Um, I actually, I don't want to say I stumbled on it on accident, but I was definitely just kind of clicking through. Like my family at the time had one of those expanded cable packages. We would just gotten it, but expanded cable packages that had like what felt like a billion channels on it. And like, I was just clicking through it because at the time regional television rights were just kind of parceled out. So LSU would have a local, um, had a local deal. Nebraska actually had a local deal um, and then, you know, here and there, like Fox Sports would pick something up or, or Cox Sports um, would pick something up and, and kind of go from there. And so I was just like going through the, the channel guide, like hoping that something had been picked up. And sure enough, this had. And it was a, just kind of a great little nugget for me to find. And it turned out to be a game that I remember to this day. And it was a lot of fun to watch and probably is not so much fun if you're a Nebraska fan. Um, it is one of those games I you know, I, I talked about this with the Ole Miss Tennessee Tech game. It is a game where you can just kind of feel the anxiety at Haymarket Park as, as you know, Christopher Cody continues to pitch really well. And, and that, that's kind of the difference there. There was a lot of anxiety in, with the Ole Miss faithful there at Swayze, and it was a lot of, like, lazy pop flies and grounders. Um, and you got the sense it wasn't really anything that Tennessee Tech's pitchers were necessarily doing except battling. It was more just maybe Ole Miss being a little bit flat, being a little tight. Uh, Chris Cody pitched Manhattan to a win in this one. I think there's a difference there. Maybe I'll go back and watch it and and feel a little bit differently about that. But my recollection of it is that he went out and pitched and got that done. Um, So I'm excited to watch it again from that standpoint. It'll be nice to take a trip down memory lane for me um, for something I vividly remember versus some of these games that I vaguely remember. Uh, This one, I I vividly remember. So I'm I'm excited to to give it another watch for sure.
2: I definitely have not seen this. So I am... I'm going to come in at it with a fresh eye, so we'll we'll see if uh, Joe's recollection stands up. Uh, I'm excited to see it. Uh, this is again a case where I believe I know who our guest is going to be, but it hasn't been locked down yet, so I don't want to say anything yet. Uh, but we will be joined uh, by a guest who was uh, who is playing in this game, and uh, we'll we'll hopefully have have be able to tell you guys who who to expect on, on the podcast. Uh, when we come back on the next edition of the Baseball American Podcast, we will be back here on Tuesday with our Newsier show. Again, we are going twice a week this spring, uh, or for the foreseeable future anyway. Uh, one early in the week newsy show on Tuesday, uh, we will be joined on that podcast by Louisville coach Dan McDonald, who is going to talk with us about you know everything that's been going on, all of the various news uh, relating to the eligibility situation, the canceled season, uh, everything like that we're going to get into with Dan McDonald. And we will have that for you guys on Tuesday. And then next Friday, we'll be back here to break down the 2006 Lincoln Regional between Manhattan and Nebraska. So make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, spotify wherever you're getting podcasts you can find us subscribe rate review if you can we appreciate it helps other people to find us and it lets us know uh you know what you're thinking about the show and we uh we really want to thank everyone who is subscribing and listening to the podcasts in this time obviously there is no baseball being played right now and the the 2020 college season is completely washed away but we are we are still uh, committed to to coming out and and talking. And obviously Joe and I have plenty of things to say. We we have yet to to run out of of content and uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying it both on the podcast and over at baseballamerica.com this week. uh, We're finishing up some draft ranking stuff uh, in terms of, we've been ranking the uh, college position groups in the 2020 draft class so this week we uh, we had the best pitchers, both right-handed and left-handed, uh, go up over at baseballamerica.com. And Joe wrote about the uh, how mid-major schools around the country are responding to the eligibility ruling from the Division One Council. So there's plenty to dive into over there as well. Uh, again, want to thank Eric Thomas for joining us today on the podcast. I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, for for Joe, I've been Teddy. We'll see you again next week on the Baseball America College Podcast.
0: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medella, the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medella is your reward. Medella, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly, beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day.